Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, and I'm delighted to talk with you again this week about issues related to Christian leadership. One of the most significant responsibilities of Christians and certainly of Christian leaders is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with lost people. Sometimes the passion for doing that lags, and so as we started this school year at Gateway, uh, I preached a special message in the first chapel service of the year to reignite our passion and give us new focus on this important area. So today on the podcast, uh, we're going to share that message with you about developing new passion for sharing the gospel. I hope you enjoy and I hope God uses it to invigorate you to tell other people about Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us worship you this morning and for allowing us into your presence by this means. We invite you now to speak to us. Change us by your word, and we receive it from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's be seated, please. And as you're being seated, open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Mark, chapter 2. Southern California has a rich heritage of evangelistic fervor, and kingdom expansion. Just some highlights. Southern California has been marked by successful crusade evangelism. In 1949, Billy Graham burst on the scene with the Los Angeles revival. And that lineage has extended up to recent days of the Anaheim crusade that's now almost reached 30 years featuring Greg Laurie and the Harvest Church Movement. Since World War II, schools in California have facilitated this evangelistic fervor. Schools like Fuller and Gateway, both founded in the same era and have contributed to what's happened here in this part of the world. There have been great churches that have resulted from evangelistic efforts in Southern California particularly. Churches like Saddleback, Burindo Street, the mother church of all Korean Baptist churches in the United States. Mount Zion Church of Los Angeles, an epoch-shaping church in the 1980s and 1990s. Along with mega churches in most major denominations. Southern California has a rich heritage of evangelistic fervor and kingdom expansion. Our seminary has stepped into, in a more direct way than ever before, that flowing stream. Now several of those streams flow together to create this convocation message today. First, you've noticed perhaps when you arrived in chapel a display in the back of the room. A display about Billy Graham's crusade in 1949 and some of the impact of his subsequent crusades in the Los Angeles area. That display was created in a partnership with the Billy Graham Museum in North Carolina, which has put these artifacts on display for us this semester at my request to help us remember and be invigorated about the purpose of reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. A second stream that flows together for this message has been the recent successes of Gateway students in evangelism and the reminder by their focused work of the responsibility all of us have to share the gospel. Over this summer, there were two evangelism courses taught at Gateway. Forty students enrolled, 
There were more than 160 documented gospel presentations made by those students and 36 people prayed for the first time to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. In addition to that, one of those students then led another 14 people to Christ at his church's vacation Bible school, meaning about 50 people came to Christ as a result of those two evangelism classes this summer. Another stream in the creation of this message was also over the summer, my appointment to a National Southern Baptist Convention Task Force on Evangelism. Evangelism in the Southern Baptist Convention has experienced a precipitous decline, particularly since 2000. And the task force created by the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Dr. Steve Gaines, has been tasked with the responsibility of bringing back a series of recommendations that will perhaps help stem the tide and turn us in a healthier direction. As a part of that, as a part of that, I've been praying that God would reinvigorate in me a new passion for personally sharing the gospel with other people. Now, what are the reasons for the decline in evangelism in the Southern Baptist Convention? Well, they are many-fold. There are theological reasons, philosophical reasons, methodological reasons, programmatic reasons, and demographic reasons. This is going to be a long convocation message. (laughs) I call those the macro reasons, the overarching big picture reasons. I will not attempt to address those in this convocation message today. Instead, I'd like to focus on the the micro reasons. I'd like to focus on our personal motivation for sharing the gospel with other people. I'd like to focus this morning on what it means to love lost people and be personally invigorated to share the gospel with them. And to do that, I'd like to show you a story in Mark chapter 2, which I think will illustrate and provide a framework for the truth I'd like to communicate today. The Bible begins in verse 1. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he, meaning Jesus, was speaking the message to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four men. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above where he was. And when they had broken through, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus understood in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, 
picked up the mat and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God saying, we have never seen anything like this. This passage of scripture begins by teaching us that we must be passionate about introducing people to Jesus. And I want to emphasize the last two words of that sentence. We must be passionate about introducing people to Jesus. Notice what happened in the story. These four friends brought their friend, a paralyzed friend, to Jesus. And we'll talk about this more in a moment, but it's evident even at first reading, they went through quite an ordeal to get their friend to Jesus. Why? Because they recognized that Jesus could do two things for their friend. And they recognized that only Jesus could do these two things. In verse 5, Jesus says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Only Jesus Christ had the capacity to forgive sins. And then in verse 11, he says to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. Jesus was also the source of healing for this crippled man. Now notice these two facets of how Jesus interfaced with this man. He forgave him and he healed him. And that speaks to Jesus being able to save people and change people. Now listen, I think I'm not pressing it too far to say that this speaks to Jesus being able to give people eternal life and abundant life, which fulfills Jesus' primary offices, if you will. He is Savior and He is Lord. Are you tracking with me now? These friends wanted to get their friend to Jesus because they recognized He's the only one who can forgive and heal. He's the only one who can give eternal life and abundant life. He's the only one who's both Savior and Lord. We have to get our friend to Jesus. Listen. We must find ways to get people we care about to Jesus Christ. He is the only source of eternal life and abundant life. He's the only Savior and the only Lord. He's the only person who can change them forever and for now. We must find ways to get people to Jesus. And I emphasize this. We're particularly susceptible to this in a seminary environment. Jesus is not a theory we're debating here. Jesus is not a theological position we hold to. Jesus is not a philosophy we communicate. Jesus Christ is a person who lived and who died and was resurrected and ascended and is right now wanting to be introduced to people all around us. Jesus is a person. 
And we have a unique responsibility to introduce people to Him. The passage also teaches that we must be determined to introduce people to Jesus. Now, you saw the story, but let's review it. Verse 2, many people had gathered to hear Jesus. What a crowd. And verse 3, the four friends show up with the, paraly- with the paralytic on a mat. You ever just imagine what that might have been like? House, people packed all around, crowd large enough that no one could get through, and these four fellows show up holding this mat. How are we going to get through this crowd? Well, I read several different persons who've written about this passage, and it's amazing how many different theories there are about how this man got on that roof. Well, there were always stairwells attached to the outsides of houses in the first century world. Well, there were always stairs attached to the houses next to the houses in first century world. Well, there were always houses abutting each other, and you could go from roof to roof to roof to get anywhere in the first century world. And there were ladders available and perhaps even ropes. I'm not quite sure how it happened. But no matter how you want to describe it, it's still an amazing and remarkable feat that they got this paralyzed man on a roof and started ripping through that roof to get him to Jesus. They were determined, determined to make it happen. They personify the phrase overused in our culture of doing whatever it takes to get the job done. Listen, Gateway, we must do whatever it takes to introduce people to Jesus. This takes many forms for different ones of you, for different ones of us. Some of you need to lead or work in crusade evangelism. You need to be like Greg Laurie at Harvest Church and initiate a movement to see large numbers of people come to faith in Christ. Some of you would think, I could never do that. Good. Then do something else. Plan a church. Be like a group of faculty members and staff members in our uh, campus here who over this summer have come together and catalyzed a new church plant in their community. Why? Because they want to get people to Jesus. Be like some men in our church who are very concerned about at-risk young African-American men who started a ministry targeted directly to them, recruiting older men to be mentors and guides and coaches and counselors and motivators on days to help these young men come to faith in Jesus Christ and then find a way to live life more more, uh, appropriately and more productively than they would have otherwise chosen. You say, well, I don't think I'm a crusade evangelist or a church planter or a ministry launcher. Well, make a friend of your neighbor. A new guy moved into me next door over the summer, and I just went outside and started talking with him. We've had two nice conversations. We're not quite to the gospel yet, but we've started toward that path of that kind of relationship. Just go meet your neighbor. Or do what someone did for me a long time ago. When I was 13 years old, I went to the fair. And I walked off the midway into the exhibit building, and there's a banner above a booth that says, 
Elmcrest Baptist Church public opinion poll. I thought, what is a church doing at the fair? So I stepped up and asked. I was 13 and quite proud of my both opinions and insight. They told me they were taking a public opinion survey that included spiritual interest questions. Would I like to participate? And 20 minutes later at the fair, I prayed and committed my life to Jesus Christ. And my life has not been the same from that moment until this. Why? Because there were some people in a Baptist church who were determined to find a way to introduce more people in their community to Jesus Christ. So I don't care if you are a crusade evangelist, a church planter, a ministry launcher, a relationship maker, or a fair booth host. Find a way to introduce people to Jesus Christ. Now you may say, well, I sometimes just don't feel all that passionate about this part of our Christian responsibility. Well, I've noticed that my passion emerges and intensifies when I am emotionally engaged with needy people. So if you will engage yourself emotionally with people who need the gospel and see them as they really are, you will find yourself feeling the passion you long for that I'm describing this morning. Do you have fresh eyes to see people as they really are? Many of you know that for years I worked in a ministry called Baseball Chapel. It's a bit of a trick question, but when you're interviewed to be in that ministry, you're asked this question. What players do you follow? Who are you a fan of? Well, when they asked me that question, I said... You know, I like the game, but I don't know that I'm really a fan of any particular player. And that was the right answer. Because what they were looking for was a person who saw baseball players for who they really are. Husbands and fathers. Mostly young men who are trying to figure out how to make life work. How do you see people around you with fresh eyes? Do you just see teachers and principals and police officers and counselors and coaches? When you watch television, do you just see activists and talking heads and politicians? What do you see? Well, I've been, because of the training I received as a young Christian, I have had something that's about me that it sometimes feels like a burden, but really it's a good thing. And that is not every day, but most days, I see most people with these fresh eyes I'm describing to you, where I see them for who they really are. For example, I, I check out at Ralph's. And while I'm standing there waiting my turn, I, I think, does this checker know Jesus Christ? I think that way. When I'm in the pool in my subdivision, I'm looking around at the children and I wonder, do these children know Jesus Christ? It's fresh eyes. It's asking God to help you to engage people for who they really are. And when you do that, emotion arises up within you and passion is there because you see people for who they really are. They're not what they do or what they pretend to be, but they're just people 
who need Jesus Christ and need to be introduced to Him. When you watch some wild-eyed activist on Fox News carrying a sign and screaming, what do you see? I typically look at those people and think, what happened to them that they would be hurting this badly that they have to lash out like this? What's the matter? And how does somebody get them to Jesus? We must be determined to see people as they really are and do whatever it takes to bring them to Jesus Christ and introduce them as best we can. Well, finally, when we do this, we will face opposition to introducing people to Jesus. Now, the story has two kinds of opposition. One is minor, one is major. The first opposition was the circumstances. They had a crowded building and they had to go through the roof. The circumstances were against the friend getting introduced to Jesus. But the second opposition is much more spiritually bone-chilling for a crowd like ours. Verse 6, the scribes were sitting there. Religious elite, the doctors of the church. And they asked this question in their minds. Why does he speak like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? No marveling at the intentionality of getting this man through the roof. No celebrating that this broken person had just been forgiven. And no anticipation that Jesus just might do what he had done on countless other occasions. And that is heal him in their midst. No, the scribes, all they could say was, why is he doing this? He's breaking our religious ritual. Violating our understanding of the law. Doing what we do not permit. And I'm indebted to Dr. Tim Wiarta of our faculty and his book on interpreting gospel narratives because he points out in his writings that this is the first of an escalating five-fold opposition from the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders to Jesus. In, Acts, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, the Bible says they were thinking these thoughts. In Matthew or, excuse me, Mark chapter 2, verse 16, they questioned the disciples of Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 24, they escalated and complained directly to Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 6, they plot with others to condemn and attack Jesus. And in verse 22 of chapter 3, this entire activity by Jesus is attributed to the work of Satan. The opposition to Jesus in this context came from religious leaders and religious elite. And that opposition started with thinking, escalating to complaining to his followers, escalated to attacking him personally, then moved on to plotting to overthrow or to subdue him, and then was, was ultimately attributed by Jesus, all of this, to the work of Satan in the world. Your circumstances will never be optimal for sharing the gospel. Overcome them. 
You may face opposition from other believers for sharing the gospel. Share it anyway. But more importantly, make sure you are not one of the criticizers. You say, well, I just don't think that happens today. (laughs) I was in a meeting a few years ago with a prominent pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention whose church had had a surge of people coming to faith in Christ and a couple of thousand people baptized in a relatively short period of time. And in that meeting, someone said, I don't like your methods of evangelism. I don't think they're legitimate. I've always loved his response. He said, I think some of my methods probably are uh, inappropriate. And if you can point those out to me, I'll change. And if you can give me a better way to reach 2,000 people with the gospel next year, I'll change and do that too. I've heard it all my ministerial life. Well, so-and-so is just cheapening the gospel. Well, so-and-so just has a bus ministry. Well, so-and-so is just reaching a lot of kids for the Lord. Well, so-and-so is just going after a certain kind of people that don't know any better about the gospel. They're down and out. They're not that smart. That's who they're reaching. They're just reaching a lot of teenagers. They don't, have to know, they don't know how to reach adults. They're criticizing people's evangelistic methodology puts you in the scribes and Pharisees category. I've heard motives criticized. Well, they're only doing that so they'll get awards at the associational meeting or they'll get recognized by their state convention or they'll get put on a platform somewhere. <laughs> Complaints about self-promotion. And then there's the one that we have here to deal with in our school, all schools do, and that's criticism over theology. A few Friday nights ago, Ann and I, you know, I know how to show a woman a good time on a Friday night. I took her to the Harvest Crusade. <laughs> you know, the offering was optional, so it was a cheap date. Uh, <laughs> uh, my wife and I went to the Harvest Crusade on Friday night. I went for two reasons. One, to support an effort of evangelism. But second, uh, I hoped it would be part of the answer to my prayer. I've been praying all summer for renewed vision and passion and refreshing in evangelism. And I, I went to just experience it and say, God, use this to speak to me. It was a profound night. Hundreds, if not a couple of thousand people streaming forward to talk to someone about the gospel. Many of them praying to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And then we walked out of the stadium. And I am not exaggerating this in the least. I got out of the stadium just outside the gate. Wasn't even to the parking lot yet. And there were two guys standing there with huge signs that said, False Christianity, stop here for the truth about the gospel. And I stood there just for a moment, just dumbstruck. How could that not be legitimate, what I just witnessed and heard? You say, well, there was that one sentence. Oh, seriously? And I just thought that while those two guys stood outside and held their sign, in the purity of their theological conviction, telling the rest of us how to do evangelism. 
another man had put his heart on the line and saw a couple thousand people come to Christ. I'll take the guy in the stadium over the critic in the parking lot a thousand times and ten thousand times that I want to stand with and identify with in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as a seminary community, my hope for this convocation message is that you will leave today more focused on the micro reason that evangelism is in decline. And that is a lack of personal and intentional and specific effort by individual people like us to make a difference in this regard. And my hope today is that you will leave more committed to introducing people to Jesus, more determined to be intentional in that effort by whatever means you may feel most effective in using, and that you will not allow the circumstances of life to limit you no more than these four men did, their friend getting to Jesus. And you will avoid what the scribes and Pharisees did in this passage and in the subsequent ones through Mark of escalating their opposition to Jesus until finally he said, you are of the devil. I hope today that you will pray a prayer something like this. Lord, there are two groups of people in this story. There's four guys carrying a crippled fellow. And there's some religious elite who are criticizing the effort. Lord, I want to be one of those four guys holding on to the pallet. And if you leave today with that as your prayer, my sense is this semester, just like this summer, gateway people will lead dozens and dozens and dozens of people to faith in Jesus Christ. And we will continue this heritage of evangelism in Southern California that traces back beyond World War II for sure, but at least since that point, has been a remarkable surge of people coming to faith in Christ in this region. Would you bow your heads together with me this morning? As we bow our heads together, I, I simply ask you to pray the prayer I've suggested. Lord, I want to be one of those four guys. Lord, renew in me a passion for introducing people to Jesus. Deliver me from debating him as a theory or discussing him as a theological position. Help me remember that Jesus is a person and other people around me need to meet him. And then pray, God, deliver me from being in that scribe and Pharisee crowd. Deliver me from, de from constantly criticizing other people's methods or motives or even their theology, Lord. Give me balanced perspective on these issues that I might be 
for people coming to faith in Jesus more than against any other thing that's been described like this. Heavenly Father, around the room, now the Gateway family's praying together. People watching this at other campuses, on the webcast, on the podcast, all kinds of people hearing this, Lord. Different times of the day, different places, we're all praying, though, that you'll make us able to introduce more people to Jesus Christ and that you'll work the truth of this message into our hearts so that we are different people for having been here today and experienced this together. Father, we love you, we celebrate you, and we thank you for what you've done in our school to bring us this far. And we thank you, Father, for what you've done to reach people through us over the years. We thank you for the most recent report of this past summer. And now, Lord, we offer ourselves to you and we ask you to use us for your glory and for the expansion of your kingdom and for the sharing of your gospel. And we receive this from you today in Jesus' name. Amen.